Please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. That'll be our main text this morning. As we continue on in our series in the book of Genesis, if you haven't picked up yet, we've been talking about it this way, but the book of Genesis essentially has two major sections. The first section is the first 11 chapters, which not only tells us the creation story and the whys, but it also lays out our worldview. That is that God made absolutely everything. And everything he made was good, including man, and yet it didn't take long for the rebellion of man to kick in. Man chose sin, and as the story continued, we see sin increase, and the effects of sin increased, such that Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, Cain gets forced away from his family, and the flood comes, all because of sin. So what you get in that first part is a snapshot of the reality of who God is, the reality of what he made, and the reality of the sinfulness of man. So when you get to Genesis 12, the second part begins, and you see a change in the narrative. And it's an important shift. We keep bringing that up because we don't want to just skip over that because God begins to call a people to himself. And he starts with a man named Abram. Abram, who was not a follower of the Lord God. In fact, the text tells us that he was a worshiper of false gods. And yet God calls out to him. God speaks to him. This is what God says in Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what you see as a snapshot is that the Lord God pursues Abram in his sin and says, I have something better for you. I've got something more for you than what you're choosing for yourself. And that's exactly what God does with all of us. What God does here is he calls Abram to go. Tells him, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a nation, but more importantly, I'll make you a blessing. So the height of where we are, the point of this story, we have to be careful because we might be tempted to make Abram the man we want to follow and say things like, be like Abram. And to do that misses the point of the text. Because what you find, even in the Old Testament, as you look at narrative, is that it's supposed to point forward to Jesus. It's supposed to show you that Abram was not enough. That Abram fell flat on his face and sinned. Because just as we saw last week, the very next passage, Abram is wandering away from the land that has been promised to him, and he's trading his wife for his security. He's not trusting the Lord, and he's not trusting in God's promises, and yet despite his faithlessness, God is faithful. Friends, if you wonder how your life relates to Abram, or Abram as he'll soon be renamed, If you wonder what our time teaching the Old Testament is for, this is the example. Why? Because it points us forward to Christ to show us that Abraham is not the answer. That following Abraham is not the answer because he too was a sinner and he would be bound to repeat that pattern over and over and over again, trusting in God, wandering away from God, trusting in God, wandering away from God. And if that pattern seems foreign to you, it shouldn't. 
Because that's my life and that's your life. And I want us to get this grand picture as we walk through Genesis, because here it is. Because the further you move along through the Old Testament, you'll start to see God start to identify himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we're supposed to lean into is not God proclaiming these three incredible men as if we should be like them. Actually, what God is saying is like, hey, I identify with this guy who's not good enough. This guy who strove and couldn't achieve. This guy who didn't trust me. And I'm like this other guy who also didn't trust me very much, but I was still faithful to him. And I'm like this other guy who didn't trust me either, and I was still faithful to him. What God is saying when he's identifying himself is I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that I'm a redeemer. And I've redeemed Abraham, and I redeemed Isaac, and I redeemed Jacob because of my mercy, not because of them. And we need to lean into that to recognize that even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our challenges and our trials, on that very day when we fall flat on our face and say, why am I in sin again? Our Romans 7 moment to recognize God says, I'm your God. Identify with you. I've, I've promised you. I've promised myself to you. I've covenanted myself to you. That's what we'll get into this morning. Because you start to recognize that what happens in Abraham and what happens in Isaac and what happens in Jacob has to be resolved. And God resolves it. And he does, th- does so through his son, Jesus. And through Jesus, he's provided a means of redemption. Through Jesus, he's provided the means of grace. And so when you fall short and I fall short, it is all given to Christ in his death that he paid the penalty for our sins. And so we need to be constantly reminded, as we were last week, that God's promises hold even when we're unfaithful and even when we don't believe his promises. And so this morning, we're going to jump forward a couple of chapters. As we're going to start speeding up our time in the book of Genesis, you may have wondered how long we'll be here. Well, at that pace, we're going to be there 57 more weeks, I counted. And not wanting to be in Genesis that long, we're going to speed up our pace a little bit this morning. So we'll be in Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. So what Moses writes. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And what Moses is pointing back to is what happens in chapters 13 and 14. So to give you the quick flyover, In Genesis 13, Abram and Lot returned back from Egypt with a lot of livestock. And in order to support both of their families and specifically their herds, they've got to separate. They've got to go different directions. And so Abram says to Lot, if you want to go that way, I'll go this way. You want to go this way, I'll go that way. And you find they both separate. Lot going into the Jordan Valley and Abram settling the other direction. Then in chapter 14, we see a battle between four eastern kings who wage war between against five Jordanian kings. And the significance of that fight is that the four eastern kings win the battle, and while plundering the Jordan Valley, they take Lot captive. The text tells us someone else escapes and is able to get to Abram, who gathers 318 trained men to pursue and defeat the eastern kings and then free Lot. There's also an interesting story in there about a guy named Melchizedek, I'll leave that to you in your study. 
Work your way into Hebrews 7. You'll have some fun. Hit me up later. We can talk about it. But when you come back to verse 1, he says, after these things, you're supposed to see this picture of Abram. God's taken him through some things. He's had some challenges. He's had some difficulties. He's starting to see that the people around him aren't always going to be easy. So God speaks to him. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And of course, the first thing you got to note is that the Lord comes to Abram, right? Again, God seeks him out. Again, God initiates relationship with him, this time to comfort him and then to expand his promise. But God starts with, fear not. I am your shield. And God is confirming this personal nature of their relationship. It's if God is telling him, I am with you. I'm your protection. I'm the thing that's going to keep you safe. And then God adds, and your reward shall be very great. Now, if you lean into that, you should quickly figure out Abram's being rewarded. For what? Because it isn't his obedience. And it isn't his ability to follow the rules. And it isn't that he's been good enough. And it isn't that he walked enough grannies across the street when they were in danger. No, actually he's being rewarded because he's leaned into God's faithfulness. He's believed in God. He's trusted him. God's saying, I'll reward you for that. So what does that look like? Abram wonders also, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God. Let's pause for just a second and recognize something. Where it says, O Lord God, this is the first time, I'm going to get, I get excited about these first time statements. This is the first time the word Adonai is used in the scriptures. And what it's actually suggesting to us is that Abram is submitting himself fully to God. He's calling him master. He's recognizing that God is his Lord, you see this progression in his relationship. God is not just God. He's a good God. He's a caring God. He's a loving God. He's my master. I've submitted everything to him. So he's not approaching God in this way that's disrespectful. He's saying, oh, my master, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. What good is a reward to me? I've got nobody to pass it off to. That's what he's articulating. Abram says, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And you start to see a little bit of Abram saying, God, I trust you. You're my master, but I'm not sure how this is going to work out. And we've got to recognize that there's a little bit of a fairness to that, right? He said, I trust you, God, but I don't see how this is going to look. And God seems to be okay with this. He's not asking out of disbelief. He's not pushing back. He's recognizing, God, you're in charge. I don't always see your timing. And we need to appreciate that. Because we often come to the scripture and we want to ask for things that God has not promised us. Or we want to take things God's promised and said, I want them now. God might just well be saying it's not yet time. 
Because what we'll start to see in this text is God lays out these promises because he's going to carry them out. He's going to be trustworthy. And yet in his trustworthiness, often what we see in the nature and character of God is he wants to give you the chance to be faithful. He wants to give you the chance to trust him. He's not just an ATM machine. He's not one of those little games you stick your quarter, move the joystick, and hope you get your teddy bear. God says, I will do it. Trust me. And God will prove to be trustworthy. We'll see that. But he's asking him to believe. So here's God's response, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now listen to me. Because if we lean into the text, we should figure out that Abram's like 80 years old. His wife is like 70 years old. And what God is trying to show him is not just that he's faithful. He's trying to put before him that he is so faithful, he's capable of the impossible. And because of that, and we don't want to miss that, he's asking him to walk by faith. God's saying, I've got something for you. You just got to believe me. You got to trust me. And God expands the promise even more. The text says he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to them, so shall your offspring be. God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. A couple of years ago, I took my family camping. We were out, I don't remember what state park in Minnesota. It's the only time we've been camping since we've lived here. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I woke up to go to the bathroom. That part of the story is less important. But I'm outside, it's 2 in the morning, and the sky is utterly magnificent. So the only thing a good dad can do at that moment is to go back to the tent and wake up your whole family. Now, they're all in their pajamas, so one by one I carry them out and set them on the bumper on my Suburban so their feet don't get all messy. And say, stand here, look up, I'm going for your sisters. Why? Because if you looked up at the stars, they were you couldn't count them. They were everywhere. The sky was magnificent. If you put your thumb out, you'd block out a million. And that's very much what's happening in this text. You've got to remember, there's no city lights here. They don't have to get away from town to see them. God's trying to make this very clear to Abram. Not only am I faithful, I'm really, really, really faithful. And I want you to see the abundance of what I have for you. But you've got to trust me. God says your family will be really, really, really big. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Friends, it matters that we believe in the Lord. And it matters not just that we believe in him to save us. If you lean into this text, you don't think that Abram is saved in this moment. It's not this moment that he comes to believe in God. We find that in chapter 12. You see something else is going on here. God's making a promise to him. God's affirming who he is. And Abram's leaning in. 
That's actually what that word means, to believe in. It means to lean in fully. It's to sit down on a chair. It's to put your butt on the chair and to take your feet off the ground because you trust it. He believed. Text says it counted to him as righteousness. This passage is quoted in Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2, all to show us that righteousness results from faith. It all comes from belief. It all comes from hearing the promises of God and leaning into them fully, even when we don't understand, even when we don't see how it's going to work out, even when it all seems impossible, we don't know what God's going to do. We lean in. Because we have to see that God doesn't just make promises. And promises, believe me, would be enough coming from God. God makes covenants. And that's a far greater thing. We need to see this. And we need to see it bigger than a promise. Because the God who does not lie makes us promises, and then he wants to seal it with a sign that I promised Abram would never, ever have forgotten. We see it starting in verse 7. This is God speaking, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to possess. I brought you out of your sin, and I brought you to a place you did not deserve so I could bless you abundantly. Verse 8, Abram responds. He said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram wants to know, God, I know you keep your promises, but help me believe you. Help me to trust you. Help me to understand that you're a faithful God. And we need to see this because God doesn't push back on doubt. God doesn't push back on this at all. God says, watch this. I'm going to make a formal covenant with you. Verse 9. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And what you start to see a picture of is God making a formal covenant. He says, go get a cow and cut it in half and lay half the cow here and the other half the cow there. Not sure how you cut a cow in half that way, but that seems to be what the text says. And then do it to a goat and a sheep. It talks them through the preparation of this kind of covenant. And the idea that you're supposed to see with a half a cow here and a half a cow there and here a cow, there a cow, no, it just got me. And, and, a, and half a goat and half a goat, the picture you're supposed to see in this covenant is that two people would lay aside animals and then they would walk between them, signifying that if either of us don't hold up our end of the deal, may we end up like the cow. May we end up like the goat. If I'm not faithful to you, may I be split in half. That's the idea of this kind of a covenant, this kind of a ceremony. So Abram prepares it all. 
Verse 11, it says, And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. It's that little picture. It's a prophetic sign that it won't always be easy. There'll be complexities to everything. Abram drives away these birds. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. Verse 13, we'll see why. Then the Lord says to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. What the Lord is telling him is he's forecasting not only his faithfulness through all of this, right? He's telling him about his offspring. He's telling him about the full fulfillment of his promise, indeed his covenant, but he's also telling him something extraordinary about his sovereignty. You got a Bible, put your finger back on this verse, because what the Lord is telling him in Genesis 15, wait for it, is the entire book of Exodus. He's putting before them, not only will I be faithful to you, but within my faithfulness, you'll have some challenges. Your people will have some challenges. And if we don't start to forecast and understand that when God says, I'm trustworthy and I'm good, but you're still going to be in slavery for 400 years, that doesn't seem to challenge his trustworthiness or his faithfulness. God puts the entire book of Exodus before Abram to know, you need to see what I'm going to put your family through. And it's supposed to show us this picture that the Lord God is completely in control, even over the challenges of Abraham, even over the challenges of Isaac, even over the challenges of Jacob, and then Joseph, he'll be in control. Verse 15, for as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they came and they shall come back here in the fourth generation from the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He forecasts the entire book of Exodus before him to say, within the realm of my promises, within the realm of my trustworthiness, within the realm of my faithfulness to you, my friends, there will be difficulties. There will be challenges, and I'm good for all of it. Because it's the Lord and the Lord alone who makes the covenant, verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Only one person made the promise. And it was the Lord God. Abram couldn't make the promise. Abram couldn't covenant himself to God. God would be faithful God declared that he'd be faithful. God covenanted that he would be faithful, knowing full well that Abram could not make the promise. And God goes through with it. Genesis 15 continues, And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Ralphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And if you follow along in your Bible, you would see that by the book of Joshua, it's partially fulfilled. 
And the only reason I say partially is because God will fulfill it all in eternity because he's promised to. He says he will. And what we need to lean into is that God is not just a promise maker and a promise keeper. Beyond that, he's a covenant maker. And what we need to lean into when we consider the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham is that he's made a covenant with us also. We see it first mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesizes a new covenant. Listen to this. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this will be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Just like in Genesis 15, he forecasts the book of Exodus. What we also find in the book of Jeremiah is he's fully forecasted the coming of Jesus, right? The new covenant. How do we know that? Because Jesus says so. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 26 at the Last Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take it, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what we see in Matthew 26 is Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of the covenant. A covenant that he alone sealed. A covenant that was given for the forgiveness of our sins. A covenant that was shown at the cross, right? When Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, God makes a promise to us. He makes a covenant to us, and he seals it with the death of his son. And Paul affirms that. Consider 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we've walked through the life of Abram, 
We need to see the picture of a guy that God sought out and God made promises to that he would be faithful. And we see Abram respond with faithlessness and fall flat on his face in sin. And yet God returns back to him and calls him. Why? Because the book of Romans tells us God is merciful. And we're supposed to see that example in our lives in that example. And we're supposed to see a picture of a covenant-making God who will be faithful even when we're faithless, and he sealed it for us at the cross. And God's called us to be reminded of that covenant. And he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take here in a couple minutes that we'd be reminded of his covenant faithfulness to us despite our faithlessness. For we have a God who is faithful, far, 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 and amazingly more faithful than we can imagine. And he will keep his promises, and he will keep his covenants. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these stories that tell us who you are and tell us who we are in spite of ourselves. Father, that your word confirms that I choose sin. It shows my sinfulness. Father, that's what the law does. It reveals my true nature. Father, thank you that despite the fact that I, like Abram, am a sinner, that you would seek us out. that you'd pursue us with relationship. And not only would you promise us, you'd covenant with us. And Father, you covenanted with us with the blood of your Son, who was a sacrifice for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, that we would forever know that you are faithful. Despite what you'd call us to walk through, we'd forever know that you'd be faithful. So, Father, I pray that you'd prepare us as we look to the covenant, as we look to remember all that was accomplished at the cross on our behalf. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.